So far, <clears throat> from the tenor of these talks, one might suppose that the only excess men have ever claimed to higher knowledge has been either through prophecy or philosophy. Such is far from the case. Many types and degrees of inspiration have been claimed by men through the ages, and tonight we wish to discuss one of the most important of these, namely a mysticism. Authorities on mysticism are agreed that the thing is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to define. Yet there is a common ground upon which the experts are all willing to stand, namely that mysticism is an intuitive and ecstatic union with deity obtained by means of contemplation and other mental exercises. That's the definition of Edvard Lehmann, the great Swedish scholar of comparative religions, who finds the mystic experience to be present among people in all ages and in all parts of the world, even among the most savage. In the words of another authority, mysticism under various aspects appears among all races and in all periods whenever religion and the relation of the soul to the unseen powerfully occupies the attention of men. It's universal. The universality of the mystic experience is matched by its remarkable uniformity in certain aspects. Everywhere the mystic experience is the same. A 10th century Persian, a 13th century French lady, a 17th century Englishman, and a modern Hindu all report certain peculiar and unusual sensations in almost identical words. And when they do that, we must grant that there is something behind what they say, for there's no collusion between them. Yet they tell a remarkably uniform story. There certainly is something to mysticism. Is it the same thing that animated the prophets of old? Is mysticism a form of revelation? Historically and psychologically, the answer is definite no. Consider first the historical aspect of the thing. The very universality of mysticism shows that it is not peculiarly Christian or Jewish. It's the peculiar property of no nation, race, or society, or church. Only by a determination to see mysticism in everything, a determination some people display, can one detect it in the Old and New Testament, which, as scholars are constantly discovering, is, are remarkably free of mystic elements. We'll recall that it never occurred to Augustine, for example, that one might view the Bible as a mystic book until Ambrose drew aside the mystic veil, he says, and showed him the hidden meaning of things which, if taken literally, appeared to him as perversity, he puts it. Taken as it stands, you see, the Bible is anything but a mystic document. Well, how then did mysticism get into the Christian church? In the same way it invaded the Jewish church, through the schools. It is a remarkable thing that specialists in describing mystic practices of various regions and religions, Hindu, Buddhist, shamanistic, Tao, Sufi, and so forth, always refer to Neoplatonism as supplying the best illustrations. In Neoplatonism, we have the classic meeting ground of the intellectual and the spiritual quests for God. The theology of Judaism was studied side by side with the works of Plato and Aristotle, writes one Jewish scholar, and thus was produced that curious blend of Jewish and Greek thought whose classical representative was Philo of Alexandria, the fountainhead of Jewish and of later Christian mysticism. According to Chapman, a Roman Catholic writer, the fundamental metaphysics in which the doctrine of Christian mysticism is grounded is Greek rationalistic metaphysics formulated by Socrates and his great successors, Plato, Aristotle, and Plotinus, end of quote. According to the same authority, Clement of Alexandria is the first Christian writer on mystic theology having taken over from Philo, the Jew, the idea that God is to be sought as Moses sought him in the darkness. Next comes Oregon, to whom the cynical Celsus points out, 
referring to the mystical parts of Oregon's writings, that no real Christian would know what Oregon was talking about. To this, Oregon's reply was what might be expected, namely that all true Christians are mystics. They close the physical eye, he says, to see only with the spiritual eye, just as he had declared earlier that all true Christians would, if they could, do nothing but study philosophy. We seem to be telling the same story about mysticism that we did about philosophy. The same men are introducing it into the church, and they're using the same arguments. Why? Because they all have the same Neoplatonic background. We quoted Grabman as attributing Augustine's great influence to the fact that he was, quote, the greatest Christian Neoplatonist, and along with that, his confessions have been described as the purest mysticism. Anyone who mingled Neoplatonism with Christianity would necessarily have to bring the mystical as well as the intellectual element in, for the wedding of the two is the essence of Neoplatonism. We've used the word a great deal. What does it mean? Well, the founder of Neoplatonism was Ammonius Saccus. Porphyry reports that this remarkable man was born of Christian parents and left the church and returned to the religious practices of the pagan Greeks, opening a school in Alexandria where he laid the foundations of a new interpretation of Plato, hence Neoplatonism, the new Plato, you see. And the new element was the mystic element, which wasn't in the old Plato. It's a significant fact, and one diligently bypassed by church historians, that the founder of that school of thought, which was completely to remake Christian doctrine, was himself an apostate from the church. Neoplatonism, wherever it appears, and whenever it appears in Christian theology, is an attempt to improve upon the gospel. The essentially unchristian nature of mysticism is apparent from the surprisingly late date at which it was introduced into the church. Do you know that it wasn't until Maximus the Confessor in the seventh century that mysticism and dialectics were fused together in their authoritative form? This is a quotation from Harnack. And the pseudo-Dionysius and Neoplatonism were officially adopted by the church. End of quote. This pseudo-Dionysius, the cornerstone of Christian mysticism, was produced by an unknown writer, probably a Syrian, at the end of the 5th century. From the 6th century on, and for more than a thousand years, though, the whole church firmly believed that it was the work of Dionysius, who was the disciple of Paul. And thus, writes Harnack, Neoplatonism and mystic cult practices were accepted as classic Christian, that is, as part of the genuine apostolic heritage, which they were nothing of the sort. The writer of the Pseudo-Dionysius is influenced, according to a Catholic authority, mainly by the Neoplatonist Proclus. He asserts the transcendence of God with extreme expressions exaggerated from the Platonists. In the opening lines of the Pseudo-Dionysius, we read, this is what Pseudo-Dionysius begins with, Leave behind both thy senses and thine intellectual operations, and all things known by sense and intelligence, and all things which are not and which are, and set thyself as far as may be to unite thyself in unknowing with him who is above all being and knowledge. For by being purely free and absolute out of self and of all things, thou shalt be led up to the ray of divine darkness, stripped of all and loosed from all. End of quote. This is a typical mystic statement, and this is the typical language of the mystics. The Neoplatonic origin of the Christian mysticism and its late introduction into the church, along with the philosophic substitutes for revelation, show plainly enough that we are not dealing with the prophetic gifts of the early church, but a substitute for them. Mysticism is something totally different from the ancient gifts of the spirit. That will appear if we consider its universally recognized characteristics. The foremost present-day Protestant student of mysticism writes, from the nature of the case, this experience of ecstasy and absorption is something unutterable and incommunicable. 
it is not like anything else. Consequently, there are no terms to describe it. The mystic, having found God, he says, cannot hint to human ears any descriptive circumstance about the actual character of God. He cannot even hint what God might be like after his mystic experience. Of the four marks of mysticism, according to William James, the first is its ineffability. It can be communicated to no one. There is nothing in the mystic experience that can be conveyed to others. According to the Catholic definition, mystic theology originally meant secret, direct, and incommunicable knowledge of God received in contemplation, end of quote. As against this, the whole calling of a prophet is to communicate to communicate the will of God to men. He is a mouthpiece and a witness, and he tells what he has seen and heard. He is a man with a message. The mystic, on the other hand, has no message. Mr. Rufus Jones becomes positively indignant at the thought of contaminating mystic purity with anything as crass and tangible as a message. Mystics, he says, have not had secret messages from sociable angels. They have not been granted special communications as favored ambassadors to the heavenly court. They have been men and women like the rest of us, and their mystical experience is rather an enrichment of the individual mind, an increase of its range and depth, an enlarged outlook on life, a heightening of personality. It is much like what happens with the refinement and culture of artistic taste or with the appreciation of beauty in any field. End of the quote from Rufus Jones. In other words, the visions of mystics are not like those of prophets at all. What they convey is not knowledge, says Jones, but rather an increase of serenity. Even when mystics do come forth with concrete revelations, according to Jones, these prove always, when they are examined, to have a historical background. The greatest mystics are bound in their experience by their social conditioning. Thus we are told, I'm quoting, that some of the many confusions and apparent contradictions in St. Teresa's writings may be explained by her having subordinated her own views to the dicta of some of her confessors, unquote. Can one imagine a prophet changing the content of his vision to suit instructions? While they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me falsely for so saying, wrote the prophet Joseph of his first vision, I was led to say in my heart, why persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision, and who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? End of quote. Mystics are a more flexible sort. It seems, writes Lord Raglan, that mystics are always persons who have been brought up in an intensely religious atmosphere. The actual type of mystic experience is always strictly conditioned. The experiences of mystics, however strange they may seem, are never new. Savage mystics and visionaries always have the experiences which they are expected to have. The experiences of mystics are never original. End of the quote from Lord Raglan. These generalizations of Raglan show the glaring contrast between the socially conditioned mystic and the socially obnoxious prophet. The dependence of mysticism on the social milieu is further illustrated by the fact that there are fads and fashions in mysticism. The mysticism of the 13th century was very different from that of the post-scholastic mysticism in which a great number of inspired ladies had revelations. In the 17th century, mysticism went completely out of favor. In the 18th, it took form of extreme self-dramatization and became a spectacle in literature and art. In the 19th, it almost died out entirely or took the form of transcendentalism. In the 5th century, it was monastic. Most recently, nature mysticism has flourished. The mystics invariably follow the fashion of the hour, both as to whether they should be mystics at all and what form their mystic discipline should take. No such choices are open to the prophet. While the mystic experience is ineffable and incommunicable, 
The means by which it is arrived at comprise a set and established discipline which the aspiring mystic must always learn from a teacher. Dean Inge gives as the first of his four characteristics of mysticism its esoteric nature, which he says can be learned only in silence and subordination at the feet of an expert. End of quote. The great bulk of mystic writings, Christian and non-Christian, is taken up with the discussions of the course of study and action to be followed by any person who would achieve the mystic experience. Elaborate systems of discipline are carefully worked out. Mental techniques must be acquired. Above all, clearly marked steps, usually three in St. Teresa's System 7, are set before the student. This disciplinary procedure is the chief mark of mysticism throughout the world. Recall that Lehman defined mysticism as a union with deity obtained by means of contemplation and other mental exercises, a definite system. This is a totally different thing from the good works by which the saints become de deserving of revelations. They do what God prescribes for their good, and in return he gives them what he wants to, and in the way and the time he wants to. The mystic, on the other hand, works his way forward to an expected objective. He knows what he wants, and he knows there is a way to get it. A tried and tested procedure has been handed down from mystic to mystic through the ages. In an earlier talk, we quoted from the ancient Didache, the true test of a prophet, namely, that if one attempts to teach his gift to another, he is not a true prophet. The mystic gift, on the other hand, must be taught. Though one person can tell another exactly how to have an opium or a marijuana dream, he can never tell the other what the dream is like. He can only wallow in vague superlatives. It has seemed something like this with mysticism. The great mystics tell us exactly what we must do to have a mystical experience, but the experience self itself is ineffable. With the prophets, it is the very opposite. The mystic has his experience as the dreamer has his dream all to himself. The mystic, according to Jones, who is our foremost student of mysticism, finds in a consciousness transcending images, ideas, or states of any kind a junction of the soul center with absolute reality, a flight of the alone to the alone. Since we know that the mystic experience must be induced, usually by long years of dedicated practice and determination, and since it is wholly experienced, of the alone, by the alone, how can we deny that it's self-induced? Introspective is Dean Inge's favorite word in this regard. The mystic deliberately works himself into a state. This is what impresses the students in the extremely unmystical nature of the supernatural experiences in the New Testament. On Pentecost, a large group shared a common experience, saw certain sights and heard certain sounds altogether. So it was at the baptism of Christ, on the Mount of Transfiguration, at the Ascension. There always was a plurality of witnesses. Always they are surprised by what happens. Always definite things are seen and heard, and definite knowledge is imparted to the human race. There was nothing self-induced and nothing expected in these experiences. The way of light in the ancient Christian doctrine of the two ways is not the mystic way of illumination. We are told fully and explicitly what it was, namely the keeping of the Lord's commandments, the reward being not the sudden flash of mystic illumination nor involvement in a cloud of unknowing, but a strong and steady testimony of the gospel. Not only are the mystics wholly alone in their private and incommunicable inner clouds of darkness, but they compare notes, and when they do, rather when they compare notes, we can never find out where they stand. Of the post-scholastic mystics, we are told that the accounts given by these various seers are impossible to reconcile with each other and that the value of all these revelations varies according to the intellectual power of the recipient. Delusions, furthermore, we're citing a Catholic authority, are exceedingly common in such cases, even in real mystics of holy life, and may occur in the case of saints who have insisted that all their words came from God. 
We must not deny that they are real holy revelations, according to this authority, simply because they are mistaken or even absurd, end of quote. But if that is so, what have we got? The Dominicans, Benedictines, Carmelites, Jesuits all hold radically different opinions as to who, if anyone, has beheld the beatific vision. St. John of the Cross, one of the greatest mystics, will have nothing to do with visions and locutions which he ascribes to bodily weakness, while other doctors of the soul urge such experiences upon their disciples as the culmination of the mystic way. Such mystic revelations, we are reliably informed, are commoner than in women than in men, and more frequent in persons of feeble intellect. Finally, there is the confession so often met with in the great mystics that, in the words of Gregory the Great, it is impossible in this life to see God as he is, that is reserved for heaven. What you get instead is such vague and luscious expressions as those which Rufus Jones has reverently collected. One mystic feels, quote, an overbrimming sense of presence. Another, quote, is enclosed in a warm, lucent bubble of livingness. Another hires sunshine for leaden hours and so forth. Plainly, the mystics are in a class by themselves with their big, vague, inexpressible, self-induced, hotly pursued moments of indefinable and incommunicable union with something whose nature totally escapes them. They are a bona fide historical phenomenon, but not necessarily a Christian one. They are a fascinating society, but as unlike the prophets, ancient and modern, as humans can be. When revelation ceased from the church, an intellectual substitute was ready to hand in the cultural and learning of the schools. The same schools also came forward with a spiritual offering which the church gladly accepted. That, that was mysticism. Few, if any, scholars will deny that Neoplatonism is the source of mystic theology, Catholic and Protestant, and none will deny that it is a key representative of a universal pagan world mysticism. The gospel lies wholly outside this historical current. It has been restored in these latter days by direct revelation and has flourished in the earth for over a hundred years without ever having to draw upon the dubious resources of mysticism. One alone among all the churches in the world since the days of the ancient apostles has been able to resist the blandishments and dispense with even the occasional services of this useful but highly unreliable discipline. Here we have another most convincing test and vindication of the prophets. <laughs>